Hello and welcome, dear friend. I'm Robert Crandall, and this is Short Stories, a production of Adventures in Audio.net. Well, we have a special episode this time. A listener has sent in a nightmare, and it's creepy. We haven't had any nightmares for a while, so this is a treat. I know myself I haven't had any nightmares or even a dream in quite a while. And uh, remember, if you, if you have a nightmare and you'd like to share it with, with me and your fellow listeners, send it to myhorribledream at gmail.com. We've had some good ones. Uh, I think about the three episodes in a row there a few months back and I know uh, sometimes it can, be, it can be hard to remember a dream or a nightmare. You wake up, you know you had something, and sometimes you'll think it'll come to you later in the day or a day or two after or something. I, I have that stuff happen to me quite a while, quite a bit, I mean. So um, anyway, send us your nightmares. You're always welcome to send it in. And now for our listener nightmare from Michael, and Michael writes, Hello, this is Michael from Boston. Let me first say that I'm offering this dream to be read on your podcast, and I give to you my authorization to use it for an upcoming broadcast, if you do so choose. Thank you, Michael. And yes, when you send in an, uh, a nightmare, it's very helpful and... and uh, recommended that you give me permission in writing to use it. So thanks, Michael. And he goes on to say, thank you for providing, the, I love this line here, thank you for providing an alternative to the heavily commercialized, boring music that is broadcast to the public without ever our mental stimulation <laughs> as a motivation. <laughs> oh, I couldn't stop laughing when I heard the, read that. That is so spot on. And uh, Michael, I, I know what you mean after having spent many years in radio and uh, playing a lot of that music. Uh, but uh, I have uh, become fond now of classical music. And if you're not uh, into it, uh, you might check that out. Uh, it's uh, a whole new world, and I can't tell you how much uh, it has contributed uh happiness and and pleasure to my life so uh that might uh that might cure your musical appetite uh, in your life so try that well now here's michael's story he writes let me start by saying i have always had nightmares as a child, I would have nightmares of myself running down my street away from every monster I have ever seen in the horror movies, biting at my heels. Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, the Boogeyman, basically the whole lot chasing me down dark alleys, my street, and sometimes I would end up on the top of a building, jump to my death to get away but wake up before I hit the ground. In these types of dreams, I would know that I was asleep, and I would do certain things to wake myself up when things got really scary, or just before Freddy Krueger put his claws around my neck. The dreams 
would come to an abrupt halt when I would scream in the dream as loud as I could. This would cause me to wake up to the sound of my screams echoing in the middle of the night. Other times I would beat my body awake or simply roll off the edge of the bed and collide with the floor. You must understand that those dreams were extremely realistic and almost as soon as I knew they were coming, I would fight my way out and back into consciousness. Sometimes shaking vigorously, my body awake would relieve some of the stress. But most of the time, the dreams would continue right where they left off when I went back to sleep. But on these nights, I would always fear going back to sleep. I am now in my 30s and I seem to have lost the ability to slap myself awake. But I did surprise myself last week when I communicated verbally with the Grim Reaper in my dream. I told myself that the pitched black abandoned mansion that I was locked in was only a dream. The Grim Reaper told me that I was wrong and that I was in fact deceased. The hood that he wore was brownish black, and his face was not entirely in shadow. It had pigment, but it was all blurry aside from two black holes were in place of eyes. When the Grim Reaper told me that I was dead, it excited me and I protested by telling him that it was a dream and that I was not dead. He argued with me, and I argued back. I was angry, and I was annoyed, and I was speaking while I was asleep. Some of what I said according to my wife was Googled and not audible, but the last thing she heard me say was crystal clear. I said to the Grim Reaper, show me my grave, show me my grave. He did. I saw my name on a typical gray slab gravestone, and then I woke up. My wife was so spooked that she did not need an alarm to wake up that day. She was up and out of bed. Wow, thank you, Michael, for that very scary nightmare. I have always had a fear of falling from a tall building or a cliff. That part really freaked me out. So, I hope you enjoyed Michael's Nightmare, and be sure to send us yours at myhorribledream, uh, uh, myhorribledream at gmail.com, and we'll get yours on the show. Thanks again, Michael, from Boston. And uh, now for our feature story. A man is told he has 30 days to live. He finds a way to talk to the dead, to find out what lies beyond this life. He commits murder in the process, which is a big mistake. I hope you enjoy There Is a Reaper by Charles V. DeVette. Doctors had given him just one month to live, a month to wonder what comes afterward. There was one way to find out. 
ask a dead man. The amber brown of the liquor disguised the poison it held, and I watched with a smile on my lips as he drank it. There was no pity in my heart for him. He was a jackal in the jungle of life, and I, I was one of the carnivores. It is the lot of the jackals of life to be devoured by the carnivore. Suddenly, the contented look on his face froze into a startled stillness. I knew he was feeling the first savage twinge of the agony that was to come. He turned his head and looked at me, and I saw suddenly that he knew what I had done. You murderer! He cursed me. Then his body arched in the middle, and his voice choked off deep in his throat. For a short minute he sat, tense, his body stiffened by the agony that rode it, unable to move a muscle. I watched the torment in his eyes build up to a crescendo of pain, until the suffering became so great that it filmed his eyes, and I knew though he still stared directly at me. He no longer saw me. Then, as suddenly as the spasm had come, the starch went out of his body, and his back slid slowly down the chair edge. He landed heavily, with his head resting limply against the seat of the chair, his right leg doubled up in a kind of jerk before he was still. I knew the time had come. Where are you? I asked. This moment had cost me $60,000. Three weeks ago, the best doctors in the state had given me a month to live, and with $7 million in the bank, I couldn't buy a minute more. I accepted the doctor's decision philosophically like the gambler that I am, but I had a plan, one which necessity had never forced me to use until now. Several years before, I had read an article about the medicine men of a certain tribe of aborigines living in the jungles at the source of the Amazon River. They had discovered a process in which the juice of a certain bush, known only to them, could be used to poison a man. Anyone subjected to this poison died, but for a few minutes after the life left his body, the medicine men could still converse with him. The subject, though ostensibly and actually dead, answered the medicine men's every question. This was their primitive, though reportedly effective, method of catching glimpses of what lay in the world of death. I had conceived my idea at the time I read the article, but I had never had the need to use it until the doctors gave me a month to live. Then I spent my $60,000, and three weeks later, I held in my hands a small bottle of the witch doctor's fluid. The next step was to secure my victim, my collaborator, I preferred to call him. The man I chose was a nobody, a homeless, friendless non-entity, picked up off the street. He had once been an educated man, but now he was only a bum, and when he died, 
he'd never be missed. A perfect man for my experiment. I'm a rich man because I have a system. The system is simple. I never make a move until I know exactly where that move will lead me. My field of operations is the stock market. I spend money unstintingly to secure the information I need before I take each step. I hire the best investigators, bribe employees and persons in position to give me the information I want. And only when I am as certain as humanly possible that I cannot be wrong do I move. And the system never fails. Seven million dollars in the bank is proof of that. Now, knowing that I could not live, I intended to make the system work for me one last time before I died. I'm a firm believer in the adage that any situation can be whipped, given prior knowledge of its coming and, of course, its attendant circumstances. For a moment, he did not answer, and I began to fear that my experiment had failed. Where are you? I repeated louder and sharper this time. The small muscles about his eyes puckered with an abnormal tension, while the rest of his face held its death frost. Slowly, slowly, unnaturally, as though energized by some hyper-rational power, his lips and tongue moved. The words he spoke were clear. I am in a, a tunnel, he said. It is lighted dimly, but there is nothing for me to see. Blue veins showed through the flesh of his cheeks like watermarks on a translucent paper. He paused, and I urged, Go on. I am alone, he said. The realities I knew no longer exist, and I am damp and cold. All about me is a sense of gloom and dejection. It is an apprehension, an emanation so deep and real as to be almost a tangible thing. The walls to either side of me seem to be formed, not of substance, but rather of soundless cries of melancholy of spirits I cannot see. I am waiting, waiting in the gloom for something which will come to me. That need to wait is an innate part of my being, and I have no thought of questioning it. His voice died again. What are you waiting for? I asked. I do not know, he said, his voice dreary, with the despair of centuries of hopelessness. I only know that I must wait. That compulsion is greater than my strength to combat. The tone of his voice changed slightly. The tunnel about me is widening, and now the walls have receded into invisibility. The tunnel has become a plain, but the plain is as desolate, as forlorn and dreary as was the tunnel, and still I stand and wait. How long must this go on? He fell silent again, and I was about to prompt him with another question, 
I cannot afford to let the time run out in long silences. But abruptly the muscles about his eyes tightened, and subtly a new aspect replaced their hopeless dejection. Now they expressed a black, bottomless terror. For a moment I marveled that so small a portion of a facial anatomy could express such horror. There is something coming toward me, he said. A beast of brutish foulness. Beast is too inadequate a term to describe it, but I know no words to tell its form. It is an intangible and evasive thing, but very real, and it's coming closer. It has no organs of sight as I know them, but I feel that it can see me, or rather that it is aware of me with a sense sharper than vision itself. It is very near now. Oh, God, the malevolence, the hate, the potentiality of awful, fearsome destructiveness that is its very essence, and still I cannot move. The expression of terrified anticipation centered in his eyes, lessened slightly, and was replaced instantly by its former deep, deep despair. I am no longer afraid, he said. Why? I interjected. Why? I was impatient to learn all that I could before the end came. Because, he paused, because it holds no threat for me. Somehow, someday, I understand I know that it too is seeking that for which I wait. What is it doing now? I asked. It has stopped beside me and we stand together, gazing across the stark, empty plain. Now a second awful entity with the same least virulence about it moves up and stands at my other side. We all three wait, myself with a dark fear of this dismal universe, my unnatural companions with patient, malicious menace, bits of, he faltered, of, I cannot name it, only aura go out from the breast like an acid stream and touch me and the hate and the venom chill my body like a wave of intense cold. Now there are others of the awful breed behind me. We stand waiting, waiting for that which will come. What it is I do not know. I could see the pallor of death creeping steadily into the last corners of his lips, and I knew that the end was not far away. Suddenly a black frustration built up within me. What are you waiting for? I screamed. The tenseness and the importance of this moment forcing me to lose the iron self-control upon which I have always prided myself. I knew that the answer held the secret of what I must know. If I could learn that, my experiment would not be in vain and I could make whatever preparations were necessary for my own death. I had to know the answer. Think, think, I pleaded. 
What are you waiting for? I do not know. The dreary despair in his eyes, sightless as they met mine, chilled me with a coldness that I felt in the marrow of my being. I do not know, he repeated. I, yes, I do know. Abruptly, the plasmatic film cleared from his eyes, and I knew that for the first time since the poison struck, he was seeing me, clearly. I sensed that this was the last moment before he left for good. It had to be now. Tell me, I command you, I cried. What are you waiting for? His voice was quiet as he murmured softly, implacably, before he was gone. We are waiting, he said, for you. You've been listening to There Is a Reaper by Charles V. DeVette and a listener nightmare from Michael of Boston. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. Arthur Schopenhauer once said that the closing years of life are like a masquerade party when the masks are dropped. May happiness and enlightenment be all you experience. Thank you.